Good morning. It's good to be with everybody. I'd like to pray, and then they'll bring some burritos and rest of the coffees and, and like in, and then we'll get, uh, we'll jump, jump right in. So let me pray for us, and then we'll start. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for this morning, and for this space, for this food, for this time to come together and learn. Bless us, Lord, bless us, Lord, as we speak about your kingdom, about building Christendom. And may we do all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. It's really good to see everyone. I was thinking, as I was waking everybody up this morning, how much I love Sunday school. I know it's not, it's a, it's a quick turnaround from out, late outpost night Nerf Wars into Sunday school mornings. But I really love these mornings. And this summer, I encouraged you to read Doug Wilson's book, Mere Christendom. And so I know not everyone got to read the book. So my hope today is to kind of explain why I think you should read the book and you should move it up on your list of books to read. And the title, Mere Christendom, was inspired, it's, it's a play on a title of a similar book, well, a similar title, by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, was a book that was supposed to provide an explanation, a mere explanation of the Christian faith. And the word mere just means plain and simple. It was a book that talked about the Christian faith that was outside of, like, denominations, and outside of particular practice, but focused specifically on the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. So nothing less, nothing more, nothing added, nothing taken away, mere Christianity. And so Lewis's mere Christianity wasn't to put forward that, like I said, that denominational perspective, but really just to be able to explain people what was contained in the Christian faith. And so Doug, similarly, has taken a similar approach in his text, Mere Christendom, but he did it with a, a slightly different subject. And so much has been discussed and argued and abused and worried about when it comes to these, these two words that really kind of freak folks out, and it's Christian and nationalism. You put those two words together and they end up in the same sentence and people kind of freak out. They worry that maybe you're some kind of a racist or you're some kind of a fundamentalist or you're some kind of an insane person, right? And, and there's been a big media push against people saying, well, we, we should have Christianity as the foundation of our political system, right? So, so Doug wanted to be able, I think, not to speak for Doug, but wanted to be able to provide a text that outlined what does it look like, what does mere Christendom look like, right? Evangelicals and, and Orthodox Christians acknowledge that Jesus is the answer to everything, which he is, right? We talk about that here all the time, all of Christ for all of life. It's not just like this personal inside feeling that you have with Jesus, but he is literally, literally the overseer of everything. Christ is king over everything. And look, we've got some burritos, perfect timing. We, we worked at a church and they had shortened the name to like an abbreviation. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, uh, we're grateful for all the burritos. Um, Please, grab burritos for those of you guys that want some breakfast. But she didn't like the fact that they had shortened the name. It was Christ the King was the church, and they went by CTK. And like, We should be proclaiming from, from the rooftops that Christ is the King. So what, what does that look for Christendom? What does that look like for Christianity as a whole? We talk a lot here about the Catholic Church, right, the universal church. What does it look like being one whole church? Well, what I think it really means is that we have to practice what we preach, that is all of Christ for all of life, is living out what our faith says. So if we preach that Christ is king, if we believe that Christ is king, which we do, then we actually have to live as such. 
which means, which really means that we can't under any circumstances live in secularism. And so we talk a lot about the fact that words are really important, and we need to be able to figure out what secularism is if we're not supposed to be living in secularism. So here's what Doug defines secularism at inside mere Christianity. He says, secularism is the idea that it is possible for a society to function as a coherent unit without reference to God. It is the idea that a culture can operate on the basis of a metaphysical and religious agnosticism. It is the idea that we can understand what human rights are without knowing what a human being actually is. That's secularism. What do you think the issue with that is? Like, what's the issue with that definition? What's the if not the definition? What's the issue with secularism? It's chaos. Yeah, it doesn't really have any guidelines. Yeah, no, it, it, it is, is waves of the oceans that move. Anything on you guys? I mean, what? It can kind of go any direction. Go any direction? It has no foundation. Yeah. Right, no, and, and, and what that means is that it can change with whatever's popular in culture. It can change with whatever's popular in culture because it has no foundation. It, it, I put in my notes, it can literally change with the wind. And that's the world that we live in now, right? Where people like up is down, left is right, girls are boys, boys are girls. I mean, if you were to just go back 20 years ago, maybe even 10, some of the things that are now treated as facts, I use those with air quotes, people would have thought were absolutely insane only a short period of time ago, like absolutely insane. And so again, the issue with secularism is it has no foundation. And it believes, it believes that it can operate in this place of agnosticism without God. It's like, well, we can operate here even though we don't have God. But this is untrue. And, and it's untrue because you have to have definitions. So think, just think back to Matt Walsh in, in the documentary, What is a Woman? Literally walking down New York with a microphone, he's like, can you tell me what a woman is? And people look really scared, like, I don't know how I'm supposed to define this. That's kind of crazy. Ten years ago, five years ago, if you'd asked somebody what a woman was, it's a pretty easy question to answer. Words have meanings, and so we need to have definitions for our words. We need to be able to define what terms mean. We need to know what a human is. We, we, we need to know what a woman is. We need to know what justice is. We need to know what peace is. We need to know what war is. And so where do we find those definitions? Well, if, if we live in secularism, those definitions are just how you happen to feel at the moment. But if we don't live in secularism, then we have a definitions book, which is the Bible. Right? It's, it, it's Christendom. It's Christianity. We, we have the foundation and the definitions and the baseline for the playing field. The only alternative to secularism is Christendom. Which then means, it really means that the only alternative to secularism is Christian nationalism, which is scary, not scary to any of us, but scary to the world because what they associate that with is American nationalism. They say, ah, you're going to be like that guy with the, the truck and the two big American flags and woo, that, that, that's not what this is. Christian nationalism, Christendom is a polis, a, poli, a, a political um, um, it's politics. It's the polis, right? It's, it's, it's politics that recognizes that it is not king. It recognizes that God is king. It is God first, then the rulers, and then everybody else. It is, it is 
those who lead bending the knee to Jesus, serving Christ before they have to rule, lead, and serve those that they have been entrusted with. This is not American nationalism. There's a difference. This is nationalism that puts God before country, God, country, and everything else. Now, we think about it as American nationalism a lot of times because Americans founders, uh, America's founders knew this. We are one nation under we're not one nation under the state of Colorado. We are not one nation under Joe Biden. We are not one nation under Donald Trump. We are one nation under God, right? One nation under God, not the God of your choosing, one nation under God, the God, the only God. The, the, the founders didn't sit around and say, like, now it can be anybody's conception of God. They recognize that it is God. What are you saying? Right. The next part of that whole thing, indivisible, mm -hmm. liberty and justice for all. Where does liberty and well, and that's and that's a. You're exactly. It's not because of our belief in God that we're divided. It's because of our lack of belief in God that we're divided. You couldn't have said it better. It's because of our lack of belief in God as a country that we are divided. America was was built and founded under unity under God. Now, orthopraxy didn't look the same. There was not, um, there was not a, a American pope, right? But it was, it was recognized that rights and liberties and justice can only come from God. They cannot come from people. Playing right in your point, Doug says this in the book. He says, the liberties of the individual are too precious to be left in the hands of a civic agnosticism. To not know why you're extending liberties to the citizenry is to not know why you'd be doing anything bad if you took them away. If you don't know why you have to give the citizenry liberty, then you won't really care if you ever take it away. Because where does your freedom and where does your liberty come from? Your freedom and your liberty come from God, right? That's, that's the only place that we, we talked about that at one of the outposts, the hope and freedom. Like, we have freedom, we are free because we're in Jesus, and the only reason we should have freedom here in America is because our freedom ultimately comes from God, not from the state. And the founders here knew that. So, of course, the detraction is, well, I mean, even if you had a theocratic Christian society, there would still be problems. Yes, absolutely there will be problems. Why would there be problems in an all-Christian society? Because we're still under the curse of the fall, because sin is real. You will still have problems in a Christian society. So you have these people that move to kind of the, these bigger church communities that some of the communities we're associated with, like they'll go move to the town where these guys are. They move to Moscow and move to Ogden or whatever and go to these church communities and then they're surprised when things aren't perfect. Well, I thought because I was moving to the Moscow community, everything was going to be perfect. And on, on the Moscow Church at Christ Church's website, they even have like, if you're thinking of moving to Moscow, it's not perfect. Because Christians still sin. The difference, the difference between a Christian-led theocratic society and a pagan secular society is we know for sure, for sure, that the pagan society will always sin, right? We know that it is a guarantee that they will sin. We also know that the Christian society will sin, but there's a difference. When the Christian society is aware that sin can happen, it also has tools built in for confession, repentance, and forgiveness, right? So the issue, though, really becomes, the issue becomes, if you are in a society that does not have God above the state, what becomes God? It's all, what, what is it? The state. the state. 
because there always has to be a God. You have to have an ultimate authority. I mean, I think we were thinking about this recently in our life, like, who's checking the checkers? Who's watching the overseers? Who do they answer to? Well, a lot of the case, nobody. I mean, they do. They ultimately answer to God, but in their mind, they actually answer to nobody. So in their mind, they become, you know, little g, they become gods. And so what you have is you have the state that, that, that acts like it is a god. You have politicians that act like they're gods. You have justices that act like they're gods, and magistrates that act like they're gods, and police officers that act like they're gods, and, and even bureaucrats in the park service. We, we went to hike Alberta Falls on Friday. We had a couple of my students in one of my students and his whole family, so a handful of folks, uh, they're in from Kentucky, and so we went up to go meet them. It was really wonderful. We wanted to go hike Alberta Falls and Estes, but they have timed entry. It's fine. And the timed entry goes away really fast, but if you show up after 6 p.m., anybody can get in. So we planned a later-in-the-day trip to Estes so that we could go hike after the 6 p.m. thing. And we were there. Good morning, good morning. There's some uh, food here for you guys. And um, so... They, they, uh, they plan this time entry. So we, we pull up kind of the road that you're going to go in to get to Alberta Falls, and there's all cars stopped on the shoulder. And I'm like, maybe we should queue up over here. But you could see the turn. So we turn, and there's a shack, and it is three minutes till 6 p.m. It is 5.57. And dude in the Smokey the Bear hat is turning everybody around. I'm sorry, three more minutes. Turn around, go to the back to the end of the line. Turn and... He's just doing his job. I'm not complaining about a guy doing his job. But you can see, you can see that people give power, people have power, they execute power, and then sometimes, many times when God's not involved, common sense goes out the window. Hey, why don't you all just stay in line right here, and in three minutes I'll let you in when the government says we can, right? But when you have authority, especially authority granted by the government, which means that you can take people's rights and liberties away, that, that, that is incredible power. If you have authority granted by the government that allows you to take people's rights and liberties away and you do not bend the knee to God, you will eventually believe yourself to be God. Always. You can see this in work environments with people that maybe you have a bad boss and they believe that your time is actually their time because they become a little G God. Everybody worships something, so the question has to always be asked, what are people worshiping? Who is the ruler? Is it themselves? Is it, is it a, another corrupt sinner? Is it a politician? Or is it the king of kings, Jesus Christ? You see, for rulers to be just, they have to bend the knee to Christ. It's just that simple. For rulers to be just, for rulers to be moral, for parents to be just, for parents to be moral, for bosses to be just, for bosses to be moral, this goes on and on and on. They have to bend the knee to Jesus. Because where does the morality come from? I mean, the reality of, of, of where we are right now is our justice system is unjust. Unjust. Not unjust. Unjust. Our justice system is unjust. I mean, anybody with two working brain cells knows this. It, it does not take a degree in rocket science to figure out that our justice system is blatantly unjust. But why? Because they fail to bend the knee to Christ. Our education system is totally broken. And why? Because they fail to bend the knee to Jesus. There was a time in American schools where the catechism was taught in the schools at the beginning of the school day. 
Because here's the reason and the reality. You actually can't be a part-time Christian. We've, we've bought into this satanic lie that, like, you can just, like, kind of wear your faith part-time. But the reality of it is it is all of Christ for all of life or literally all of nothing. That, th those are the only two choices that you have because you can't actually separate faith from practice. Ju Orthodox Jews know this, that you can't se – now, theirs is legalistic, but they know that you can't separate faith from practice. Muslims know this that you can't separate faith from practice. Mormons know this, that you can't separate faith from practice. Atheists actually know this. You're, 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 um, the people that made COVID their religion, the people that make environmentalism their religion, they also know this, that you can't separate faith from practice. But somehow, in like modern American evangelical Christianity, we believe that it can be this part-time thing. But listen to James's words in James 2, 14 through 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, by, uh, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James isn't saying you're saved by your works. Don't misunderstand James's words. Uh, there are people who are works-based that say, well, I see it's proof, James says it. That's not what James is saying. James is saying that if you're in faith, your works have to change. If you're truly saved, something about you is going to change. It's not perfection. It's not like you're super Christian, get your cape, right? But the reality is everybody worships something. So if you claim to be a believer in Jesus, you should be acting like you worship Jesus. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And also incredibly hot. You'll have the fruits of the Spirit. You'll be good soil. What's up? So you're not saved by works, right? You're saved by faith, but your works change because you are in faith. If you don't worship Christ, you worship mammon. It's just that simple. So then the question then becomes, what do we do about this? Well, what we do about this is Christian nationalism. And whatever is that? Well, that is the polis, that is the, the, the leadership, that is the majority bending the knee to Christ. Ah, the retort is it's Sharia law with the Christians, ah! No, it's not. Now, you might think I'm a weirdo, and I am, but not because of this. You might say you're pushing an agenda, and I am, but it's God's, not mine. This is not Sharia law. This is not Sharia law. But we, we don't want to be so, so daft, I think, to believe that we don't want our polis, our politicians, and our leaders influenced by the thing that actually is the only thing that can save people, right? First, our country and our founders acknowledged that it was God that our rights came from. Many of the original founding colonies had state churches. Separation between church and state is not in the founding documents. It is treated that way. It's hilarious. Kids' schools teach it that way. It's not. It was in a letter. It was in a letter that was written. And it was about not having a, an American pope, not having the Church of America, like you have the Church of England and the Church of Scotland. What they did not want was a national church. We don't want a national church. We don't want a national church. I don't want the Church of America. I don't want a Protestant pope, unless there's a super cool hat. I'm excited if there's a super cool hat. 
but I do want a Christian theocratic system. Why wouldn't I? And why wouldn't any believing Christian? Because here's the, here's the real question. I said this last night. Do you believe the promises of the Bible to be true? If you believe the promises of the Bible to be true, if you believe what God says to be true, then you have been given a great commission. And as we continue through Matthew, we'll get there eventually. But it says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all as to the end of the age. All nations, all ethnicities, because all authority has been given to Jesus on earth as it, and in heaven. All authority, right? He is ruler over all. Christ is king over all. There's actually no such thing as a secular divide in God's economy. It doesn't exist, right? God is in control of everything. So why wouldn't we as Christians want the world to experience the blessings and the benefits that come from being in faith in Christ, that come from loving your neighbor? And you see, what's incredible is that a Christian theocratic society is the only society where, uh, whereby the unbeliever still has equal rights. A Christian theocratic society is the only one whereby an unbeliever has rights. Because Orthodox Christianity believes God picks works in people's hearts. It's not us, like, ratcheting people and marking it on the board in the back so we get our extra merit badges to heaven. We believe that, that, that God works through people, that we are to go out and spread the gospel, and God, God will respond. But we believe that everybody is an image bearer. What we're saying is that the moral system of Christianity should be the basis of the legal system, which provides free speech. It provides limited government. It provides rights to unbelievers. It is not Sharia law. What Sharia law says, if you do not believe, that's fine, except you have to pay a big tax or we kill you. That is not what a Christian theocratic system says, actually, a Christian theocratic system is an accountable system with limited government. Doug says, again, my point is that the, the free speech rights of the average non-believer would be far more secure in a Christian republic than they currently are in this epistemic funhouse of ours. Because free speech is just that, free speech, even if you're a bozo and you say stupid things with your free speech. We don't have free speech right now. You have free speech right now as long as you say something that doesn't offend somebody that has the right to take your speech away. But the second that you use words that hurt somebody's feeling or their potential sensibility or they created a microaggression in them that isn't actually real, all of a sudden they say, well, you actually can't say that. You're not allowed to use those words anymore. Pardon? Your words are violence. In a Christian theocratic society, you can say what you want to say because it really is free speech. Now, somebody may tell you that there are consequences, right? Like eternal ones. <laughs> but you're not um, censoring people. Have you been watching some of the stuff that's come out from how Meta and Facebook worked with the White House to intentionally censor? It's insane. They've got a whistleblower that's been revealing all of these email threads and documents that are coming from the White House and the Department of Justice that have been using social media as a platform to censor and direct an agenda. That's scary. That's what happens when you live in a secular society. The reason you get free speech, the reason that the unbeliever gets as many rights as the believer in a Christian theocratic society is because it applies the same standard of justice to everybody. 
And the reason it applies the same standard of justice to everybody is because everybody's an image bearer of God, whether they believe in Jesus or not. You see, Jesus being king over the world is true whether people believe in it or not. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need other people's belief to make it real, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, whether you believe in Jesus doesn't make his existence as king of the world any different. And so when you live in a Christian theocratic system, you are applying the same standard of justice to everybody because it acknowledges that Christ is the only universal solution, and it becomes a system based on biblical accountability. Think about our, our, our system of confession, repentance, forgiveness. It's all based on accountability. It's owning your stuff. And, and, and repentance is working to try not to do that thing again. It's not perfection. It's a continuous cycle. It's like dying to yourself. It's a continuous cycle. But, but the biblical system is one that protects children, it protects families, it protects women. I was saying this uh, last night, Vern and I were talking about this last night. I'm reading this book called The Toxic War on Masculinity, Nancy Piercy. It's really, really good. And she said this about Rome in the first century. We need to know that in ancient Roman culture, children had little value. We regarded them as non-persons. It was considered normal to beat them. Fathers even had the legal right to kill their children for any reason. Abortion was widespread. So was infanticide. Unwanted children were abandoned, left outside to die of exposure or to be devoured by wild animals. In fact, leading thinkers of the ancient world, Plato, Aristotle, Circeo, um, recommended infanticide as a legitimate state policy. The practice was so widespread that a pagan writer in the second century marveled that one of the oddest things about Christians was they did not practice infanticide, that they do not destroy their offspring. It is, it is a historical truth that a culture that devalues children also tends to devalue women who devote so much of their time and energy to raising and caring for them. Historian O.M. Bakke, Bakke, I don't know, in When Children Become People says, it was Christianity that created our modern concept of children as precious beings worthy of special love and tenderness. And in the process, it also raised the status of mothers. The fact that the early church prohibited abortion and infanticide was one reason women flocked to Christianity. Today, people who oppose abortion are accused of being anti-woman. But in the end, anti-woman for encouraging them not to kill their children. It's an odd world we live in. But in the ancient world, people recognize that to reject abortion is to be pro-woman. The church's opposition to abortion and infanticide communicated that Christians cherished the female contribution in bringing new life into the world. They treated women's uniquely female role and function with respect. Women's rights came through Christianity. Women's value came through Christianity. Paul acknowledges women in, in his letters. The first two witnesses to the tomb were women, which was interesting because when there were arguments about text and scripture and canonization, an argument against Christianity early in the first century was, well, they used women as witnesses. So, so elevating the status of women, elevating the, the, the status of children, protecting life. You see, we've lost sight of how important this is. This is why Jesus, Jesus came to earth. This is why why we build Christ's kingdom here on earth, right? Because kingdom builders protect lives. Kingdom builders are protectors, protectors of liberty, protectors of freedom, protectors of life. I mean, look at this. There are people out in the world, they're yelling and they're screaming, and what are they demanding? They want justice. 
they, they want equality, they want fairness, they want all of these things. Well, I want justice too. I think fairness only happens in weights and measures. And we're all unique creatures and life isn't always fair. But I want justice, but I want real justice. But the question then becomes, it goes back to what we said at the beginning, who defines justice? Because if we live in secular clown world, then we get this bastardized version of justice. We get a corrupt legal system. Because without a foundation of God, how can you expect just justice? You can't. Something that's interesting, I didn't put it in here, but I meant to. In, in a Christian theonomic world, you can have penalties, even the death penalty, and also forgiveness. You can still forgive somebody and they can have a penalty. Right? There are certain capital crimes. I don't support the death penalty as we do it because we are an unjust legal system. But I support the biblical death penalty because it's done within the bounds of morality and bending the knee to Christ. You could have somebody that committed a capital crime that was put to death and still forgiven. And they can still be saved. But it doesn't remove the consequence because sometimes we still have to have consequences even in a place that believes in confession, repentance, forgiveness. So I have the consequences, right? Because it's God that gives us the tools for real justice, for real restoration. Good morning, good morning. There's a burrito if you'd like one. Um, because God gives us the tools for forgiveness, for restoration, for punishment, for, for, for restorative punishment too, right? It's not about vengeance. It's never actually about revenge in God's economy because who gets to take vengeance? God. So if you are a justice, if you are in the polis in God's economy and you bend the knee to Christ, you're not worried about taking revenge. You're worried about being just in God's moral law, which is unshakable and unmoving. What's interesting is our foundation for our legal system is Deuteronomy. It comes from Deuteronomy, and I could never get that word out ever. That's a hard college word. Case law, multiple witnesses, though we don't we don't require multiple witnesses in the current legal system, but the biblical system does for good reason. See, a godly justice system knows that it's not there to bring revenge, it's there to bring justice because it believes in reconciliation and forgiveness. A system that does not believe in forgiveness, that does not believe in reconciliation is, is one of the markers of the evil of secularism. It's a lack of forgiveness. That right there, that's how you know you're, you're playing in the evil of secularism is if you're in a place that lacks forgiveness. And we see this everywhere, right? I talk about this all the time. That's cancel culture. Cancel culture is the lack of forgiveness in orthopraxy. Well, you committed some past sins, so canceled. Full, full on shutdown. You know, you, you did something when you were 12 and that's it. You can never, never again. There's never hope for you ever again. And there are literally people, literally. Always makes me think of Park and Rec with Chris. This is literally. There are literally people who spend their lives cataloging all the bad things that any of you have done so that maybe sometime in the future you do something else. Like, oh, look at all these bad things he did years ago. Right? And look at, I mean, we're about to enter, we're about to enter into like the grossest time of perpetual condemnation, the political election cycle. Why do we want to live like that? Why do we want to live in cancel culture? Why do we want to live in a place of no forgiveness? If you live in secular world, that's what you get. But if you live in Christendom, you get out of this circus of condemnation and you, you go into a place of forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and accountability, and it's not perfect, but, but it has a system. 
And why wouldn't we want that for the world? Why wouldn't we want a system for the world that encourages people to love one another? Like, why wouldn't we push it, be pushing for that? Shame on us if we're not fighting for that. I was thinking about the election cycle. Doug's words again, he says, Part of what is entailed in this message is the theological truth that kings and rulers and princes and presidents share with the rest of us this radical disease of depravity. When those rulers are brought to obedience, one of the first things that will develop from this is the ideal form of limited government. If you bend the knee to Christ, you know that you're not God, so you're not trying to build more power. When you don't bend the knee to Christ, you're trying to build huge organizations that have power. I mean, I watch this in the corporate world. If you can get enough people below you, you can make yourself layoff proof, right? Because you start building layers and layers of organizations, and you'd watch people. They'd like, when I was trying to climb the corporate ladder, I was a little bit like this. But you'd watch people that would smiley glad hand, kiss as much butt as they could, because they wanted to put enough people below them to build huge, massive enterprises because they like the God complex. You see, the more power a leader has, the more power the polis has, the more power the magistrates has, the more requirement uh, of humility, the more humility that is required. The bigger amount, there's a greater amount of humility you have to have, the more power you have. There's a book called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, I know I've talked about it before. It's a book on political theory. It's a book on political theory about the impact that lesser magistrates can have, especially if they are really humble people building for God's kingdom. You see, the reality of, of Christendom or nationalism isn't a call for everyone to look the same way, right? We don't want everyone to look like little Americas or little Frances or little Africas. But what, what it is, is that every country and every nation will bend the knee to Christ while still containing all of their cultural uniqueness. That's what makes life so interesting, is that we have all these, we have cultural uniqueness in the United States, and we have cultural uniqueness all around the world. And that's what makes everybody unique. It's not your skin color or, or, or even what, where, where you speak. It's that you, you know, what language you speak. It's that you are different than him. It's different than her. And then you get to add in these other things that are like the ketchup on your french fries. Nietzsche, your, your cultural background has, in, it has brought me into incredible food dishes that I love so, so much, right? And, and you get to share those things. And they make this part of the uniqueness of who you are. It's not the defining characteristic. It's gravy on top of the mashed potatoes or ketchup on top of the french fries. It's awesome. Pardon? It's true diversity. That's right. We're not looking for, for Christian robots. God made everybody different on purpose. He gave you all different gifts on purpose to, 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 to use them to glorify him and to beautify his world. And, and the reality is even if every nation was Christian, you know what? Nations would still disagree because sin and depravity. But there would be a different toolbox to solve disagreements. To be a different toolbox to solve disagreements. And this isn't just a philosophical concept. This has been tried and it worked. Abraham Kuyper, who I've also been reading a lot, he was the prime minister of the Netherlands, tried it. And, and the Netherlands prospered under Calvinistic Christian theocracy. I mean, they prospered. The government was smaller, the people were freer, the capitalism was greater. They prospered. It was incredible. Freedom, accountability. You might just have to go pop that door. And it's this last one, the one I was just saying before, it's what drives the others, accountability. You see, the theonomist, the theonomist, the Christian, is one who is accountable, right? That, that's the whole system of Christianity. It's an acknowledgement of man's fallen nature, his inability to do anything about it himself, 
So you have confession, accountability. You have repentance. That's, that is turning from something bad, being accountable. When you turn something and you take that action, it makes you accountable. Then you have forgiveness, which is accountability and action. All of these things are actionable accountability, right? And when, when individuals act in this way, it's life-changing. When single individuals act in this way, it's life-changing. But what happens when communities act in this way? What, what happens when nations act in this way? So, so think about it. We're going to talk about the mustard seed in a little bit and, and how, how little things can have incredible impacts. But we know this. When you meet people that are accountable, they can have a, if you have a community, if you have a household, if you have a whole nation, think about, think about that. But on the other hand, if you go back, if you just believe that your primordial goo that turned into this living, breathing clump of cells sitting in the chair, then here's the other reality. You actually have no rights. You don't because you don't actually matter. You just happen to be a little bit higher up on the food chain and you can talk and you have thumbs. So maybe you can fight off the wildebeest a little bit better, but you don't really matter. You're just an evolutionary accident. Welcome to Earth. That's very scary. It is very scary. Right. And then you're going to make other things God. Right. And then you'll be desperate to not fall from that. Right. And so hostility and anger and fear will drive you. Which. That's it. And that's what we see in secularism. But if you believe, which I know all of you do, that people have rights, that men have rights, that women have rights, that justice should exist, that accountability should be there, that God does exist, <laughs> then what you have to ask is, by what standard should those things be governed? By what standard? And if you are a Christian, you already have the standard. So why don't we want that standard, the best standard, God's standard, to be applied everywhere? God's standard doesn't just apply to these four walls here on Sundays when we show up for an hour. God's standard applies to everywhere in life, all things, all authority. We talked about this at the Ascension. Jesus is actually at the right hand of the Father. Francis Schaeffer keeps saying this. I read it again this morning. I told you guys about it last night. All of these events took place in space and time with real people in a real place, just like we are real people in a real place, which means God has real authority. There is, of course, a spiritual realm. But, but God's authority is real and tangible now, in space, in time. This isn't trivial. And so if we're Christians and we believe in the promises of God, then we have to live like it. We're going to talk about that in the sermon, which means your faith has to impact every area of your life. It must be applied to your life. One of the guys last night's like, I need you to tell me to quit my job. And I'm like, that's easy. Just quit your job. He's working in New York on the East Coast, and he needs to quit his job. Quit your job. I... I I don't know how we lost this, this needing to put our faith to all areas of life, like separating our orthodoxy from orthopraxy. It has to be the influence of Satan. How can you claim God is the most important thing in your life and not live like it? That's like, it's an unfeasible disconnect. doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean perfection. It just means acknowledging who is king. And we should want the political system that acknowledges who is king. It's so great, though, like... If you had a political system that knew Christ was king, you would actually get rid of all the unlawful administrative law. I've just been reading a book called Is Administrative Law Unlawful? The Cliff Notes version is yes. That's all you need to know. But you remove, like you would get rid of OSHA. OSHA goes away if you had a biblical system because there's a standard already in the Bible. Deuteronomy 22.8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of the blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. 
The point, the point that Deuteronomy is making is your responsibility is to make sure that people don't drown in your pool and fall off your roof and fall in that sinkhole that you left in the front of the yard or if United Airlines drops a 777 cowling on your front porch, right? The, the idea is that you're accountable for your actions. You don't need big daddy government to put the pacifier in your mouth and, and can give you, I don't how many pages of OSHA regulations are there? My dad used to have this thing on his door. He was the vice president of a construction management company. It was like an old cartoon and it said, um, due to recent safety regulations, OSHA now requires um, um, uh, safety rails, handguards, and seat belts if you've come to ride my ass today. And since you're the third one, please get in line. Um, <laughs> you know, like, they make a rule about everything. Um, well, I guarantee we're breaking an OSHA rule right now. But you don't need it, because when you, have, when you have God's economy, you have accountability, you have personal accountability. You don't need big daddy government. Just think, and I'll try to wrap us up. We're going, I'm going a little long, sorry, but how different life would be if politics wasn't what it is now. If, if the people who were our leaders were actually serving us, acting as servants. But you can only be a servant if you are a servant, and the only way to be a servant is to be a servant to God. Part of the reason that pastors, and I encourage pastors to wear collars, is slaves wore collars. Hello, hello, good morning. We got a couple extra burritos if you're hungry. Um, and pastors wear a collar to show, because slaves used to wear collars, it shows that they are a slave to God. I first serve Him, and then I serve others. Well, that's right, because everybody's going to worship something. If they don't know God, they're going to turn their political leaders into God, which then again becomes my argument for theocracy. Uh, a, a, a theocracy encourages capitalism and wealth and freedom and personal property, all with reverence to God first, all with it in its, in its own place. I mean, I'm kind of laugh here. I, I don't want to get too much on a segue, but like, you own property here, but you don't really own it. The state can still take it from you. If you don't pay your property tax, if you own your house outright and you own the land, you own the building, but you don't pay the tax to the state, they can take it all. That's not actually property ownership, right? But it would be if you lived... In, in a society that all bent the knee to Christ. Because what happens is, is that when you live in a society that bends the knee to Christ, you encourage wealth, you encourage prosperity, not like prosperity gospel, but like real prosperity, because it's giving. Uh, George Gilder, I just heard the other day, said, poverty is taking and wealth is giving. Uh, wealth generation always is giving because it's altruistic and it's generating with ideas or businesses or knowledge or information. And poverty is, also, is always taking. What can I get from you? What can I get from you? What can you give me? Take, 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 take. The Christian theocratic system is giving. It is built on a foundation of giving. And remember, none of this is perfect. Theocracy is not perfect because sin is still here. But what we're going to see in a little bit in the sermon is when we look at the, 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 the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, we're going to see that there's still those things until the very last day. But then we trust in God because there's judgment. And it takes care of the tares. It takes care of the weeds. So the reality is we have the only optimistic system in the world. Think about that. Secularism is not optimistic. It dies. If you believe there's nothing greater than this life, that's not optimistic. Evolution isn't optimistic. That's just survival and power. I mean, this is the irony of communism. Each according to their ability, each according to their need. That sounds really nice. Fight the oppressors. But how do they do that? They do it by oppressing people. Every tyrannical system is led by oppressors who claim to be oppressed. I'm a victim. Now I shall victimize you. 
But we know, and we talked about last night, the true oppression comes as the crucifixion of a perfect God, the perfect man. That was oppression. And who did Jesus oppress? Nobody. Not a person. And who do we oppress? Nobody. Not a person, right? What do we do? We glorify. We beautify. We grow. We love. We love our neighbors. We love our enemies. We aren't victims. In fact, we actually know that we're not. We know that we should have been crucified in Christ's place, but instead He was crucified in our place. We know that we've offended a perfect and a holy God. We've sinned against Him, and yet He redeemed us. That's how you get to humility. Because you're at the foot of the cross, crying at the foot of the cross, realizing it should be you. When your leaders are at the foot of the cross, looking up, realizing it should be them, then they lead with humility. They are no longer oppressors. They are no longer victims. But they are grateful bondservants of the greatest God in the whole world. And they're humble. When you become humble, you become a person of service because you're not interested in yourself. And that's what we want for the world. That's what we want in theocracy. And, and that's what we're commanded to go take to the nations as part of the Great Commission, is this idea that, that to be alive, you must die. We're going to talk in the email this week about constantly dying to yourself. This is not a one-time process. This is a, sometimes in the day, it's a multiple-time process in the day, dying to ourselves. There is only one hope. It's not Obi-Wan. It's Jesus Christ. He is the only hope for the world. So, my encouragement to you is if you haven't read Mere Christendom, you should pick it up. It's really good. I hope that this, what we talked about today, encourages you because Doug is going to tell you about the problem and then he's going to show you the solution. And the solution is so simple. It's really, really, really simple. It's mere. It's plain. It's basic. And it, 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 it's not about denominations. It's about acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything because he is. Christ is Lord over everything. And we, we as his church, must live like it. So let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful that you have sent us Jesus to redeem us, to make us new, to be Lord over everything. And so, Lord, we pray that we live like that, that we live like reborn and redeemed, joyful Christians, that whether we eat or drink and all that we do, that we do it for the glory of God. And so, Lord, um, cut into our hearts, remove pride and envy and strife, and let us, let us just come to the base of the cross on our knees in true humility, knowing our status as depraved sinners, but as redeemed through true oppression, the crucifixion of a perfect, of a perfect man, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.